0: People look for ways to park problems like this as being not just localized, but kind of balkanized. So it's about them and what they do. And also in this particular iteration of the moral panic, that this isn't a mainstream British thing. It's a black thing.
1: You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, series three, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions, and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. What do you know about knife crime? It's something that happens in gangs and on the streets. It's something you've never had to worry about, right? Gary Young is an author, broadcaster, and a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. Formerly an editor-at-large of The Guardian newspaper, he has written five books, including Another Day in the Death of America, which chronicled the lives of 10 children and adolescents who were shot dead on one day in November 2013. I've wanted to talk to Gary since his award-winning investigation for The Guardian in 2018 called Beyond the Blade, where he took a similar approach to another day in the death of America, except he took a year, not a day, and he told the stories of the 39 children and adolescents who had been stabbed to death in 2017. Gary has lived in both America, where he wrote extensively about gun culture, and now back in the UK, where he has written extensively about knife crime. And I don't think there's anyone who deconstructs the myths around social violence like Gary. We discuss why knife crime is a public health issue, why the term knife crime itself is a social construct lacking in context, the ramifications of shutting down shared free spaces for adolescents, and how we won't ever get on top of this issue until we understand that knife crime is about poverty, not race. Gary, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: What do you think is the biggest myth about knife crime the
0: biggest myth is that it's it's a crime of young black men that's the biggest myth that is it is predominantly true in london overwhelmingly in london um the people who die of uh knife crime are young black men overwhelmingly but nationally that was not true and while young black people were still overrepresented, the thing that we found, and it was it it was really intriguing that to just get the numbers was a real fight, a series of freedom of information requests. Um, because when I started the project, it's like, well, how many young people die from knives? How, you know, what what how big will this project be? And the really weird thing was no one could tell us. There was each local police authority kept its own numbers and um, not all of them shared them uh, or would share them. And so with my colleague Keelin Barr, who's a data journalist, we, we kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And finally, we got the numbers and the numbers were staggering because they showed that while in London, overwhelmingly, the ethnicity was black, that in Britain as a whole, black people made up about a third of the young people who were killed by knives and then it also forced a reckoning with a large number of other people who are killed by knives who don't count under the rubric knife crime so one i think one in five were female one in five were children under the age of five now obviously they weren't killed you know those kids weren't killed on the street after a fight or whatever but if knife crime is crimes committed by knives then they are victims of of knife crime and what what we found was that actually knife crime was a construct the term was a construct which meant a particular form of social violence committed in london between black men that's really what that term stood for but actually didn't cover all of the people who were vulnerable.
1: Why was it so hard to find the statistics? I was fascinated to read that. What do you think the ramifications of that cloak and daggeriness has on how we understand it? Well, I think it's
0: huge. I think I'm still not clear as to what the motivations were beyond bureaucratic, but in the absence of fact, people rest on, Presumption, assumption—you know—a range of uh, pre- prejudices. They have to prejudge because they can't judge according to the facts, and so they go with what they think they know. And quite often, what we think we know to be true is not true. This—this this was an example that in London dominates the news agenda in a range of ways, and this is one of them. Uh, race is not always straightforwardly understood. And there is a place where two young black men attacking each other, and there's a place where that can go in the national psyche, where a young woman killed by her ex boyfriend, or a child killed by their mentally ill mother, two white kids in Cheshire just don't fit in. And so they're kind of taken out. So, I mean, for all of the ink that was spilt about knife crime, for all of the speeches, David Cameron, Tony Blair, they all made speeches about knife crime. Literally, they didn't know what they were talking about. They couldn't have because the figures, while they were available, they weren't made available and they weren't known.
1: There's an assumption, as you say, that it's a London thing, but it's also, after London, it's most prevalent in Manchester and the West Midlands. And the statistics aren't wildly different, are they, between those places? Why is it also prevalent in those places?
0: Honestly, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why, um, why it would come to be in those places. I can tell you from my research in gun deaths in America, that, and this was a, a pre-corona description, there is an epidemic characteristic for certain forms of social violence, where if you're in an area, and you know this is logical once you uh, describe it in this way, if you're in an area where people are being stabbed, you're more likely to carry a knife. If you're more likely to carry a knife, you're more likely to use a knife and so you're in an area where more people are stabbed and so on and so forth. So I remember in Chicago, where I lived for the last four years, when I was the guardian correspondent there, a guy called Gary Slutkin, who worked on gun deaths, but had been an epidemiologist for the WHO, I think, or the UN. And he showed me a map of Chicago and the red dots where people had been killed. And they were mostly on the south and west side. And he said, this is a very similar map to the one you would get for dysentery in DACA or for typhoid in a certain area. It's an epidemic map where certain areas aren't, uh, aren't affected. And so I don't know why it would have taken off in those areas, but it stands to reason that once it has taken off, that it might escalate.
1: That reminds me of something you were saying when you were talking about Another Day in the Death of America, where you said, if you carry a gun you are more likely to be killed by a gun so so there's that social contagion element
0: exactly it is it is a form of it is exactly that it's a form of contagion if you carry a gun you're more likely to be killed by a gun if you have a gun in the house uh, uh you're more likely to be killed by a gun you know most people who were shot dead in america kill themselves now um so suicides make up more than half of all the gun deaths in america Now, the fact of the matter is that guns are a very efficient lethal weapon. And so if that's what you want to do in a given moment, it will get the job done. Now, the fact is that quite a lot of people who attempt suicide later go on to have more mentally well lives and um, do better and the kind of, either the cry for help or whatever you might call it, for want of a better term, is effective. Um, You don't get that second chance if you put a gun to your head. You might, if you take an overdose. So, you know, guns are incredibly, you know, they're they're lethal weapons. It's why the NRA uh, and the gun defenders in America, their mantra, It's not guns that kill people, it's people who kill people. It's so trite and so ridiculous. Because it's like saying, it's not toasters that make toast. It's people that make toast. (laughs) That's true. But what, what do toasters exist to do? They exist to make toast. Guns are lethal weapons. They get the job done.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the role of the media? I know as a former journalist, you think that the way things are reported matters hugely in how we understand issues.
0: With knife crime, there's the fact that it's reported in a certain way um, and, and um, that that um, is kind of contingent on whether a newspaper or media outlet decides that this death is worthy of reporting. Uh, And then there is the nature of the report. So I was really struck during the year that we stayed on knife crime for um, a significant time when I was at The Guardian. Generally speaking, newspapers and media outlets would cover the death and the sentencing. That was it, sometimes a funeral. But the trial, they wouldn't really cover. For the death of Kumari uh, Serencuma Barnes, I was the only uh, print journalist then, and there was one TV uh, crew who were doing a kind of a a documentary. Uh, And so you get the, it is overwhelmingly boys, particularly in London, it's overwhelmingly black boys, you get the boy who is dead, you get the boy and the dog. Quite often, if they're under a certain age, you don't, you don't know the name of the boy and the dog. So you just see them being sentenced. And then you have an interview with a parent of the uh, dead child who inevitably says, that's not long enough. And just to cover this one case, uh, not forensically would be too too great a claim, but closely to talk to the mother of the boy who killed him as well as the mother of the boy who was killed, to sit in the courtroom when the statement is read out that of all the things that the mother of the boy who killed him tried to do because she saw this coming. And you lose a sense of this kind of morality play. That led me to this view about journalism that, you know, we're told when a dog bites a man, that's not a story. It's when a man bites a dog, it's a story. But actually, sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, who owns these dogs? And why do the same people keep getting bitten? And what can we do about these dogs? That sometimes we get so used to a narrative that we stop thinking of it as news. And and that has really, really uh, important effects because, let's say, um, in Dallas, where there's a boy, Samuel Brightman, was shot dead. He was walking his friend home to his his granny's. It made a paragraph in the Dallas Morning News. Well, the police have so many things to follow up on. They have so many things to do. If nobody's making an outcry, well, they're less likely to actually try and find out who, who did it. If there's something systemic going on in that area, but nobody, or the outcry isn't amplified, then they're less likely to be addressed. And there was a comment at the bottom of this very short story about Samuel's death from a woman who said, "Well, I don't want to judge." and then of course she goes on to judge, but you know I know where my kiddos are, and you know, parents have to do better, and what's he doing out at 11 o'clock? And she's already decided decided who Samuel was. And who his parents were, and then I find his mum and his sister, and I find out what he was doing that night. And they'd had a family night. That uh, his friend had come over because his friend was going to take his granny to church the next day, and his friend was going out with Samuel's sister. Samuel, sixteen, they had drunk cocoa, watched with the Millers, and played Uno. the worst thing Samuel did that night was cheat at Uno, which apparently he did regularly and then he had walked his friend back to his granny's because his friend didn't live in the area it's an eight-minute walk and he said I walk you some of the way back and he was shot while he was walking his friend back to his friend's granny's. but this woman had decided that Sammy was you know was a thug and his mum was absent and um, and after a while and this was very true with knife crime, there is this kind of shaking of the head and a kind of, you know, a pathologizing of both the victims, sometimes the victims, always the perpetrators, that refuses to engage with anything structural, like, well, how many youth clubs have been closed down in this area? The academy system of um excluding people quite often at the drop of a hat because it's bad for business more or less the pupil referral units some of which aren't uh up to snuff the fact that lots of parents work two jobs and aren't able to physically be present when the kids come home from school that all of that stuff counts and yet there's a place that you can put it if you frame it in in the wrong way as just being kids are running wild and they're all on computer games and we're not on computer games they're just lunatics and then the older people get into this thing in my day and it's almost never true you know in america they kept, they kept saying in my day and i would look at i would ask them how old they were and the truth was that quite often in their day was a crack epidemic and people were falling at a far higher rate um, and uh, gun violence was actually much worse.
1: I mean, I want to go on to the closures of, of public spaces like youth centres, but presumably in the places where predominantly these young black boys are being killed are our, our places that are poorer.
0: Yeah, by and large. If if you're talking exclusively about London, then interestingly, they're overrepresented in the outer ring. So places that people think of as being notoriously rough in London, if you don't know them, like Hackney, which is where I live, uh, or even Tower Hamlets, uh, which is one of the poorest boroughs in Britain, aren't the places where you'll see most deaths. Most of them are in places like Croydon, Edmonton, in the French, they would call them the banlieue, the the suburbs. They're an the outer ring of um, of London. I mean, the thing about the racial element and the economic element is that you can't understand either one separately because there are lots of poor white kids and they're not dying at the same rate. So there's something about being a working class black Londoner that makes you... Particularly vulnerable, and some of that will 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 come back to that epidemic kind of nature, that nature of contagion. That if you're hanging around a certain group of people who are doing a certain group, you know, if the people in your crew, the people who you know carry guns and you're more carry knives, then you're more likely to carry knife, and so on and so forth. Uh, beyond that, I. I honestly don't know, apart from that, black people are concentrated in the poorest areas where there are less, there is less social capital. And, um, and then the other thing, and this was much more a thing that I, I, I learned about in, in America with gun violence is if that, if you know lots of people who've been shot, Then your attitude about safe sex, about kind of living carefully, there's an assumption that this could well happen to you. I didn't know anybody growing up apart from one boy who was run over. I didn't know anybody who was killed. But if you're around this stuff a lot, then it's going to change the way you think.
1: A couple of years ago, when talking about knife crime, Carla shared that in two thousand and five in Glasgow there were forty murders mm. and there were only sixty thousand people in Glasgow so that year a Glaswegian as a whole was twice as likely to be killed as a black Londoner and I think it's Incredibly interesting when we look at the statistics like that. Consider a new narrative. Is this another way the issue gets siloed to say it's a London problem, it's a Black London community problem, and then it doesn't become a systemic thing? It becomes something, it's individualised, it's about a very specific person.
0: I think absolutely. People look for ways to park problems like this as being not just localized, but kind of balkanized. So it's about them and what they do. Um, and also in this particular iteration of the moral panic, that this isn't a mainstream British thing, it's a black thing that we want to contain. Glasgow uh, and Edinburgh, uh, Scotland in general is a very interesting case in point. It was worse there than almost anywhere else. And it wasn't black kids doing it they really got a hold of it and they got a hold of it through understanding knife crime as a public health issue and there are two elements to that the first is health as opposed to crime understanding it as a thing about kind of dealing with people's mental health and the kind of epidemic way of understanding it, and the other was public, that this needs a public intervention. And so um, in Glasgow in particular, they had a kind of coordinated response that went to the places where it was worse and said to people, look, if it's housing is a problem, let's talk about housing. If employment is a problem, Let's talk about that if drugs is a problem let's talk about that if it's abuse if it's and if you don't talk to us about that if you're not cooperating with us then we will then we will criminalize you and you know it worked in the year that we did it there were no kids who were killed in Scotland Now it hasn't disappeared from Scotland entirely but the two things that the, um, Scott said that was different in Scotland to London, Uh, in particular, but I think uh, Britain in general. The first was that they could get cooperation from the local community in a way that is not possible, certainly in London, or is less possible, because uh, because of the suspicion that black people have of the police, that black people want their kids to be safe They want them to be safe from knife crime. They also want them to be safe from being stopped and searched in a disproportionate manner that is humiliating and criminalising. And uh, as a black parent myself, I, I, I feel the same. I worry about my kid. I want him to be safe. I want other people to be safe around him. But I also want him to be safe to walk the streets unless he's doing something wrong. So they don't get the cooperation from the community that, they really need. And that wasn't true in, in Scotland. And they said, look, you can, you can throw away the key. You can stop and search as many people as you like. It's not gonna stop knife crime in and as of itself if you only treat it as a criminal matter. The other thing that they, did, they said in Scotland was, we were able to treat this holistically as a Scottish issue. In London, you've got 32 boroughs, each doing their own thing, all charitable sector, not public sector, charitable sector. So each not only doing their own thing, but having to do something slightly different in order to earn their dollar. They spend half of their time raising money and only half of the time doing it. They're doing good things, but um, it's a public problem. And it's to solve it, you need a... You need a publicly funded solution.
1: This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Oto and their cult Sleep Drops. I first tried Sleep Drops last year when they were recommended to me by a friend, and I've never looked back. I've had sleep issues for the last five years or so, and I would regularly experience all-night bouts of insomnia. I made some lifestyle changes, no mobile phones in bed people, which helped immeasurably, but I still felt anxiety about going to sleep, until I met Sleep Drops. Oto believed that products should be evidence-based, and their award-winning Sleep Drops are bestsellers for a reason. Created to help you wind down, relax, and better prepare for a peaceful night's sleep, they're blended with 50 milligrams of pure CBD, which is the research recommended amount proven to have an impact on your sleep. One of the most common misconceptions about CBD is that it makes you drowsy when actually it optimises your natural sleep-wake cycle. It's not a sedative, it's a healthy, sustainable and natural alternative to a sleeping pill, helping you to feel focused and productive during your day. If you like the sound of them, visit otocbd.com forward slash Pandora. That's O-T-O-C-B-D.com forward slash Pandora to shop with 20% off using the code Pandora20. The link is also in the show notes. So emulating the approach of the Scots, which sounds really admirable and it just kind of makes me feel more depressed about how they've managed to get on top of it and we really haven't. Do you think that the new prime minister's pledge to add 20,000 policemen on the streets is, is not going to get us to where we need to be? I mean, wouldn't it be better to have 10,000 on the streets and then put the other money for the 10,000 into youth services?
0: I know that there's been a cut in police and so uh, they're going to have to restore that somehow. Honestly, I feel that the police at the moment, they tell you actually, they did when I was doing um, the series, and it must be worse now, that they are forced to do a whole lot of stuff that isn't police work, it's babysitting, that you've got X number of kids off-rolled from school because the schools can't be dealing with them uh, or excluded from schools. Um, You've got kids out who might be in, who might be, you know, who might be at a youth club or or wherever. You have a child adolescent and mental health system that the people who work in it are trying their best, but there's no resources going in there. And so they're dealing with kids who aren't well, who aren't in school, who are often hungry, and who are idle, and that's kind of not their job. So, which is why it's a kind of, um, why it's holistic. And this is tangentially, although uh, certainly relevantly, why I, I think the defund the police slogan that was uh, part of Black Lives Matter was kind of unfortunate because... What it's talking, actually, the government has defunded the police, actually. But what defund the police means is that there's a lot of things that the police do, uh, this is how I understand it, that aren't criminal, that aren't about criminal things. They're about societal breakdown. And actually, a lot of the money that's going into police force would be better spent. I mean, actually, hold up. There isn't a lot of money going into police force, but a lot of money spent on child and adolescent mental health services, youth services, decent schooling, bringing back the um, stipend for kids who stay in school, all of that stuff would actually help solve crime. And uh, and ultimately you would need less police. So you've actually, what what they're doing when they hire a thousand more police, but they're still cutting child and adolescent mental health services and youth clubs and so on, is they're policing a social crisis. And actually, that's not the police's job.
1: They need to get to the root of it. I mean, youth services have been in dire straits for a while now. They've been cut by 60% since 2010 and up to 80% in places like the West Midlands, which, funnily enough, has a knife crime problem. And there's also the wide-scale closure of libraries too, 800 since 2010. And there seems to be a reluctance to understand how much the closure of shared free public spaces impacts teenagers who don't or can't spend time at home. I I, I don't understand where where else people think they're going to go, but the streets where they are obviously more vulnerable.
0: You know, I couldn't agree more. And to some extent it was ever thus. To some extent, I remember, I mean, I grew up in a Caribbean matriarchy, so it was never me doing this, but I remember friends, you know, in parks, you know, squeezing into swings that were too small for them, just kind of into dusk that there is, you know, it's a very rocky period adolescence and an awful lot can can go wrong. And you have these kind of young, hormonally charged people going through quite a lot anyway. Anyway, if, if the, when the sun is shining, that is true. And the sun ain't shining right now. You know, People are living in much more cramped spaces, I think particularly, but not exclusively in London. Parents are working longer hours. People are freaked out, uh, you know, financially kind of really at their last, on their last wits. And yeah, where are kids supposed to go? Where are kids supposed to go? And this is like, this is assuming that they're in school. But this, the thing that I referred to, the almost summary exclusions and the off-rolling. Off-rolling is where a school just says, you know what, why don't you learn from home? Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll send you a tutor. School's not really working for you. Now, the kids that they do that to, they may not be misbehaving. They might just not be doing very well. And the the schools, the academies, don't want their test scores on their docket.
1: Will you link this to the league table obsession, don't you? The the pupils who are kind of shoveled off to the pupil referral unit.
0: The pupil referral units. But these are kids who aren't even – they're just let out. Just get – just – just go your own way. I think it's Sarah Connor, the MP for Croydon, who I interviewed as part of the as part of the knife crime series, who said, you know, the the police will tell you that the academies are a problem. We are just chronically underfunding our children. And then expecting that it will be okay and it's not okay. And it's a similar thing with camps where there's a, a lot of kids, particularly after coronavirus, struggling with ADHD, ADD, um, possibly bipolar, depression, anorexia, self-harming, all of those things, and just not enough help. And Now, if you've got the money for, to buy in therapeutic help, then fine, but if you're in the CAM system, the people in the CAM system itself will tell you it's inadequate. And so a lot of the kids who misbehave at school and are kicked out of school and have got nowhere to go, they're not well. The boy who killed um, Kumari, his mum had been pushing for services for him. She hadn't got them. And she'd asked for anger management and they said, oh, he doesn't meet the threshold. Well, then he killed a boy. He killed a boy and yeah, and then he got, and then he she said he reaches the threshold now, but it's too late. And she really did. She wrote to her MP, said, Please help me save my son. She she in a meeting with the Brent officials said, Either he's going to end up dead or somebody's going to end up in a body bag. She could see it coming, and there just weren't the, you know. Computer says no. It, it, sorry, it doesn't meet the threshold, and and um, that doesn't excuse him for anything that he did, uh, but it does contextualise it.
1: I live in Brent, and you do really see how stretched the services are. I mean, all the GP surgeries around us—you know—get one star on Yelp because you can't get an appointment there, and when you do, the doctors are. I mean, one doctor told me two years ago. Uh, that they were drowning. He was like, this surgery is drowning. I don't know how long we can keep going for. Um, and I, I mean, these are such enormous warning signs.
0: Yeah. And, and that once again, if one funnels that issue back to America, where you have, which is further down the line in terms of not having access to medical care, the biggest providers of mental health are the prisons. It's a bit late by then. And when I'm asked in America, you know, what's the one thing that if you could do one thing and I always say, well, the one obvious thing to everybody else in the world, although it would never happen here, is to get rid of guns. But like, that's not going to happen tomorrow. The next most important thing would be to have free access to mental health services that in the absence of that, unless you are able to keep down a job long enough to get healthcare through your job, then usually the way you get healthcare, uh, mental healthcare, is that something goes wrong and you end up in prison and then you get your healthcare.
1: The Economist. Narina Hertz uh, writes about how public spaces are becoming more hostile. So not just the shutting of um, youth centers, but that, and this is, this is a worldwide thing that she reports on, but that you're actively discouraged from sitting in many urban spaces, thanks to urban planning, which includes things like bollards, spikes, no park benches, etc. Does that sense of architectural hostility that we increasingly see in Urban planning feed into what you have called the psychic effect of violence
0: I think it has I think it's it's um it's nuanced but that there is a really valuable quality to public space uh because that 's where you meet people who you might not meet otherwise that's <laughs> where you run into people it's um it gives you a, it's a, there's a sense of community interestingly, maybe, I grew up in Stevenage, which was created the same year as the NHS by the Attlee government, and the whole idea was that this would be, unlike the kind of certain areas of London, this would be a place where you did know your neighbours and where there were kind of local areas, and, you know, it was the first um, pedestrian shopping centre in Britain that the Queen opened. And um, I, I tell the story, when I talk about Suge, I tell the story of my mother when she did, the, the day before she died, she went shopping and it was a pedestrian centre and she was walking around and my mum, she'd been a teacher for years and a youth worker and kind of, it was like going shopping with the Queen or something, like everybody knew her and she was, you know, so, so lots of people had saw her and then the next day she, she dropped dead. And now Stevenage, the town centre has been quite run down and the outskirts are where, you you know, you drive to the shops and, um, you you know, you all of the things that were in the centre are now in the periphery. And that, were that to happen now, no one would have seen it the day before because there isn't that kind of communal space. And that does, it ties you together in a very real way. That the, my biggest use of communal space is the school playgrounds, you know, and when I drop my I do some volunteer teaching at my daughter's school. When I drop the kids off, first of all, I see other parents, but then I see kids who are kind of in my class, and I can talk to their parents. and And that that's how places work. If you don't know people, you're much likely to care. You're much less likely to care about them. And you're, you know, that's where in the public square, the kind of um, uh, the rough edges are kind of hewn off and that you you get to know the person with the brolly and the bowler hat maybe, or the hijab, or uh, the yarmulke, or whatever. That, uh, uh, and um, either the, the greater hostility in most places and the shrinking of those places, they make it less likely that you are gonna care about what happens to other people and that's, that, that contributes to a kind of, a kind of society where uh, um, things like knife crime, gun crime might happen, which is why it's so offensive when people, to me, when older people say, oh, kids nowadays, it's like, well, look at the world you've created for them. How can you blame them for being born into a kind of community where the libraries aren't as open as they were and the youth clubs don't exist and all that? That's not their fault
1: cause and effect. Americans like to say that at least they don't have a knife problem. And Brits like to say, at least we don't have guns. And Donald Trump said in 2018 to a speech at, guess where, the NRA, They don't have guns, they have knives. And instead there's bloods all over the floors of this hospital. They say it's as bad as a military war zone hospital. Knives, 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 knives. Could you tell me a little bit about, because it is invoked quite a lot, you know, us, but there is that sort of national pride of Brits being like, oh God, you know, the gun problem in the US, why does no one get it? And over there, them doing what Donald Trump does. Why is the comparison between gun crime and knife crime a false equivalency?
0: I mean, first of all, I would say like, what a weird competition. Do you know what I mean? Like, at least our kids aren't dying like that. No, our kids are dying like this, like, you know. For the parents of the kids who were dying, like it really, it doesn't, it really doesn't matter. There are a few clear differences. So, um, having a knife is not protected in in the British constitution. First of all, we don't have a constitution. And secondly, the right to bear knives. We don't. We we don't recognize that as 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 a as a, a human right. Which uh, the NRA sets itself up as a civil rights organization. So can, if you can imagine that, that frees us up more for tackling uh, issues of uh, uh, knife crime. Knives are obviously um, every every house has at least one, and usually quite a few. Um, and they are necessary for other things Um, that becomes a problem guns if you live in rural areas then guns have other roles you know for killing what they call critters and wolves or whatever and of course there's guns that are used in sport now most rural communities wherever you are that's not an issue and Lots of countries have gun sports, so that's not an issue. What they don't have is, you know, AR-15s or kind of huge weapons of war that you can kind of, you know, that you, you can buy when you go into Walmart to get your socks and then you can just kind of roll about your neighborhood uh, with them. So we're talking about very different access. And then... I mean, there are facts to contend with, and I don't want to evoke these facts as being like, and therefore uh, uh, Britain is is better. But at the time when Donald Trump said that, a child or teenager in America was 16 times more likely to be shot dead in America in 2016, that was the last time that, that figures were available then, than they were to be stabbed to death in Britain. So it, it doesn't really sixteen times. That's quite a lot, you know. In London, which he said was like a war zone, and which is the which is the place in Britain where knife crime is most intense, you were four and a half times less likely to be stabbed than to be shot anywhere in America as a young person. So the toughest place to be in Britain in one of the toughest years, was still considerably safer than America for kids in any year. So, um, so of course, like... It, it, a lot of this is, you know, some of the stuff you get with um, with racism and I find it very weird, you know. That people say, well, at least Britain isn't as racist as America. And it's like, great, thanks. Do you know what I mean? What, what bloody use is that? Britain's dangerous. America is certainly more fatal. My, my experience of growing up in a new town in Britain and, of you know, living there most of my life, apart from the 12 years that I spent in America, is that Britain is actually socially a more violent country. People drink a lot. Uh, and, you know, when they drink, they get rowdy. And um, I feel I have felt much more likely to get beaten up in Britain, but much less likely to be killed. Now, you know, that is something, but I'd rather just (laughs) go around my life uninterrupted, thank you, not feeling that I'm either gonna get beaten up or killed. But that has been my, um, uh, you know, that's been my um, experience. And um, when I'm on the radio in America, because. I think there were two things when I was reporting from America that British people didn't get. One was knife crime, and one uh, one was guns, and one was healthcare. And um, even the poshest, most Tory area in Britain just doesn't understand the appeal of guns. Why they wouldn't, when kids are dying at a rate than they are, particularly? Why they wouldn't kind of fix that? You know that to, to some extent that is a kind of that is a a cultural, a serious cultural divide. But when when I would be on the radio in America and Americans would call in and, you know, be defending their right to bear arms, and I would say, well, first of all, do you love that amendment more than you love kids? You know, or your kids? Like, it's not plausible. But secondly, I don't think American parents are any worse than parents anywhere else in the world. And I don't think American kids are worse than anywhere else in the world. And I don't think kids in London are worse than kids in Cornwall. And I don't think parents in London are worse than parents in Cornwall. So then we have to look at what else is going on, don't we? Do you know what I mean? Why, why in that particular context, you would have that particular problem.
1: Both gun crime and knife crime are politicized, but gun crime is part of the American dream in a way that, um, or oh, sorry, guns are part of the American dream yeah. in a way that knives are not part of a sort of proud British national identity. I mean, it really keys into that, you know, man must protect himself, that kind of masculinity and pride and and the white picket fence. I mean, it's a specifically white dream. 90% of the NRA board members are white. You can't escape that.
0: When I was at the NRA convention, I went to a few uh, and I would say to uh, people who were there, explain it to me, what's the appeal and they would say, you know, and they would all use the same scenario. Are you married? And say, yes. Do you have children? Yes. Imagine somebody broke into your house. And they were going to rape your wife and they were going to shoot your kids. They were going to shoot you. And they were going to take everything you'd work for. What are you going to do? Wave a bat at them? Call the police and sit there and wait for the police to come? Or are you going to protect yourself and protect your family? And there are all kinds of appeals in there to kind of masculinity, small government, do for self, all those things that I mentioned. And if you go further back in America, into America than uh, taking the country from the Native American Indians and slavery, the gun is central to all of that, to a certain sort of power. And the truth is that, first of all, actually, after suicide, you're most likely to be shot by someone you know. So you know, are you married? Yes. Well, then you know your wife's probably going to shoot you.
1: Is that what you would reply? Because I'm interested in what you replied when they invoke that um, scenario. Well, I, I
0: um, uh, let's say what what are you going to do? I would say I would say to them, well, you see, in England most people don't have guns, so I wouldn't worry if somebody broke into my house. I wouldn't worry that they were going to shoot me. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be my worry, and. Um, you know, I have no problem picking up a baseball bat and going for someone who's who's, who's, got into my, who's got into my house. That's what I would say, you know, it's like, you know, if you're in a cinema and everybody stands up, then everybody's got to stand up. If you think other people have got a gun, then you get a gun. But if you think people don't have a gun, then you're not likely to have a gun. And I don't know about you, but I would assume that someone who broke into my house didn't have a gun. They might have a knife.
1: To people who are listening to you talk and would have never thought about knife crime or gun crime, or even violence in, in any of these ways before, what would be your takeaway? I'd
0: say that the, the, the next time you're reading a story about someone who's been killed by a knife is to assume that there is a context, not to excuse anything but to assume there's a context, to actively wonder what really happened there. Uh, And so to avoid the crude morality play of the good person and the bad person, the good victim and the bad perpetrator. And to understand that actually these, because it's often young people, particularly if you're reading about young people, then these crimes aren't committed by metaphors. they're committed by kids. And so the best way to try and prevent the next crime happening is to understand why the last one happened, which is not about excusing anything, but it is about understanding understanding more that the parent of the kid who was killed is devastated. Chances are the parent of the kid who killed them is devastated too. Different, but true. And so it's difficult. I remember thinking this in the dock, in the the call, that it's difficult to know what justice looks like when one 15-year-old is dead and the other one is on trial for murder, because it feels like all of the major injustices have been committed already.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate you coming on to Doing It Right. Um, It's been so great to talk to you.
0: Thanks a lot for having me Pandora.
1: This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.